Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Hey, this is O'Teal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Welcome back to Comes a Time. Uh, that's O'Teal. And that's Mike. And today on the podcast, we have musician, author, Grateful Dead historian, uh, David Gans. Yeah, it was a good visit with him. He's he got fired up right there at the beginning, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did. He totally does. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, he's no. cool. You know, I, I'm a big uh, call. Well, first of all, like I first got to know him from 105.9 Hartford Radio WHCN when I was a kid. They would do the Dead Zone, which would be like a block of Grateful Dead studio stuff, and then the Grateful Dead Hour would follow. And I would listen to it religiously. Like every Sunday night, I would listen to David Gans. And then when I got my car with Sirius in it in 2005, or whatever the hell it was, and, you know, the Grateful Dead channel and all that, but um, they started doing Tales from the Golden Road a little bit down the way. And uh, it's just, I love call-in radio shows. I absolutely (laughs) love call-in radio shows because I love to hear the people who call in. (laughs) <laughs> like what inspires someone to call into a radio show, you know, and for deadheads to call in sometimes it's like the most spun out, like they're like, turn your radio down. And they're like, what about my radio brother? Like, it's like, turn your radio down. So it's just fun to listen to the way he handles callers. But boy, I mean, Dude, live radio, it takes, <laughs> it's a handful, man. Nerves of steel. Yeah. yeah. You just got to. You got to be able to roll with it. It's pretty totally funny. Do. When I was on their show, we had this caller that just, she went into the weeds yeah. and quick <laughs> with no hope of coming back out. It was great. They'll be like, they'll be like, Nick from Utica, you're on the, you're on the phone. And then Nick's like, I have seven questions. My first question, and they just go, all right, like, you know, but they handle it with grace. And, uh, but David's been a part of this scene forever, man. And it's, uh. I, I, you know, he's, he's an incredible, you know, we, we talk about how he handled like not playing and playing during this pandemic. Once again, another very unique way of handling the, the lockdown, which I thought was really neat, you know? Yeah. It's been, he's, we've all gotten, well, a lot of us have gotten some good lemonade out of all these lemons. Absolutely. We hope you guys enjoy it and support David and check him out live when he streams and uh, 
We're here on Osiris, home to so many amazing podcasts. Check them all out at OsirisPod.com, including Alive Again, this uh, incredible Trey series. And uh, if you are interested for uh, to hear some more from us, uh, head on over to Patreon for some uh, bonus episodes and some incredible content. Patreon.com slash comes a time pod. Enjoy David and we'll see you out there on tour kids. You have the coolest background, man. (laughs) I have, I went on, um, on the dreaded Amazon. It's hard to, it's hard to boycott them. I know I I do the best I can, but, um, I was just looking for tapestries because I was just, I wanted a backdrop and and my wife got a bunch and I was like, hmm, let me just put in, you know, Egyptian tapestries and all these things came out. I was like, oh yeah, I want that one. I want that one. So you just got to get the right size. (laughs) I'm not sitting in front of it right now because I'm downstairs, but in my studio upstairs where I do my daily live streams, I have a tapestry that's a, a, a batik of my Rick Turner guitar. Mm. Uh, oh wow! A woman in Kentucky whose name suddenly escapes me um, made this for me. She like took a picture of my guitar, made a tracing of my guitar, and then the next time I came through to play that festival, she gave me this beautiful batik that she nice. made of my guitar. So when I needed something to hang behind me for my daily thing, like in front of my CD rack, right? In mm. that thing up, it's just beautiful. It's like sunrise over my guitar. It's really nice. I need someone to make me a big backdrop of this. The Colonel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just a huge the Colonel. Really <laughs> Putting it out there in the universe. Universe. <laughs> I had a dream about him the other day, and it wasn't like a, a dream where he was involved in it, but I was in I feel like Chicago. And there was um, like the outside of a bar and it had all the upcoming artists and there was a poster, a Colonel Bruce poster. And it was like just his face, like looking surprised. And it said like these dates that I don't remember the dates, but I totally remember him being like in that, in that dream. And after (laughs) getting to talk to you and knowing him like from stuff before, that's a guy I really wish I had the the chance to meet. Yeah, I'm with him at, at uh, Spirit of the Suwannee Music Park at various festivals that we played, you know, and he gave me this great piece of advice when I started um, working on uh, uh, reinventing my metabolism so I could take some weight off and stuff. He said, yeah, he said, never eat when you're bored. And I thought that was really great advice. That's fantastic. And I quoted him to some other people. I was talking to Reverend Jeff Mosier sometime after he passed. And I quoted him to quoted that. And he said, yeah, that was he was that was great advice that he never followed for himself. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, man. (laughs) I'm glad you got to hang with him. But it was really great advice. You know, it's like eating is like when you go someplace and you have to wait, they say, here, have something to eat, you know, or hi, welcome. Can I give you something? Like everywhere you go, people are trying to shove food at you. Walking out of a restaurant, there's candy in a dish and stuff. And I just had to learn to stop accepting yeah. everything that was thrown at you, right? And it turned out to be a major and, and important lifestyle change for me. And he was just really, really 
It was just a really cool piece of advice, you know, just summed it up into a, one short sentence like that. And it really served me well. I found the same thing with cigarettes when I was yeah. trying to quit. When I started <clears throat> singing, I took over singing lead in my solo band. And it was just like, I realized, I'm like, okay, when are you smoking the most? And most of it was killing time. You know, we didn't have a tour bus, so you had to pull over and get gas. I mean, everybody would jump out and smoke a cigarette. And so I started asking the other guys in the band, I would say, I'd say, do you think most of your cigarette smoking time is to kill time? And they all thought about it. They were like, yeah, it is. And I thought, wow, we're killing ourselves yeah. because we haven't found a better way to kill time I thought, okay, we got to be smarter than this. <laughs> That's what the Buddhists are talking about when they talk about mindfulness. And I went all those years, I was struggling with my weight, and they talked about all this mindfulness and stuff like that. And it turns out to be true. If you yeah. can train yourself to just think about stuff and like pay attention to what you're doing. I, I realize how many times I'm sitting there trying to get something written and I'd get up and walk into the kitchen and grab a handful of trail mix or something and go back and sit down and write some more, you know, it's like, well, that's not a, it's not, it's like poisoning yourself as a way of trying to loosen your creative juices. It's not a smart move, right? <laughs> yeah. That's so true. But it's that's so a true. cultural thing with us. It, you know, I, when I would go to New York and you get the sandwiches, like this much meat. Yeah. And I'd say, can I get four more pieces of bread? Because I can make two more sandwiches out of this. And I asked my buddy, uh, Shelly, that was our tour accountant. I was like, what's up with this, you know? And he's like, well, think of all the people that came from the old countries. And they, mm -hmm. they you know, their relatives would give them, look how much meat we can have on a sandwich. You know? so, yeah. And it just like, so I started to do that same thing or I was just like, I'm already full. Like this is an American portion of food, right. but yeah. like three people could eat this. Yeah, when you start that, like I notice it in airports. You know, I I order <laughs> a, like a chef salad and a, and it's like immense plate. You know, like this is yep. three pieces for me now. There was a time in my life when I would have ate the whole thing, and then had a right. donut something but now it's like wow this is more than enough. like my wife and i my company buys dinner for my wife and me once a week and just sort of compensate her for putting up with my daily live streams and all and, and and we order a meal out from one of our favorite local restaurants and we wind up getting two and a half meals out of it right yeah absolutely it's incredible how much we eat in this country and and once i started paying attention to it and trying to get myself healthy, I realized it was just seriously, so much of it is just habitual. Absolutely. It's a cultural thing. How much we throw away. That I mean, you know, that part, mm. yeah. I'm a leftover king. I'll, that, that Chinese meal, three days. Yep. Lunch yeah. the next day, dinner the day after that. Like, you know, I finished that food. I just, I'm, it's, for me, it, it makes me crazy to throw away food. Yeah. When people are one starving. The, when I go on tour with the uh, Impractical Jokers, one of the guys, Joe, he he lost a bunch of weight. And what he would do is the minute that he ordered food, he would say, pack half of that for me. Like, don't even bring it to the table. Just please pack half and bring it when we're done. So he yeah. automatically would cut his portion in half and bring it and inevitably probably give it away Like while he was like walking down the street or whatever city we were in because that food sits on a tour bus and gets old and whatever. But yeah, it's it's... 
It really is incredible, the portions. I've noticed that microdosing has helped me quite a bit with not like <laughs> getting up and going and eating the trail mix or whatever. Like I'll get up and I'll pour myself a glass of water or like some, you know, like take a walk outside. It gets me instead of going for cigarettes too. How often do you do that? As often as possible. Uh, I spent most of May doing it. Uh, I took a couple days Every off. Day? Uh, huh? Every day? Like five days on, two days off, or four David, days on. David, this three is days like off. really minuscule amounts that you you don't feel. I mean, sub perceptual, like too, not too. at all. Hmm. You, you do it too, Teal. I have. I'm not right at the moment, but I have. There was a 30 day thing, and it was awesome. I haven't tried it. it. Helps. Daily, daily, but moderate cannabis user, and I keep I crave psychedelic experiences, but it's just hard to make the time to do it properly. Well, you, you know, you the, don't the have thing those that's been, with this. Yeah, this isn't yeah, that. Yeah, the thing that's been what? it's literally like I, I, it's a, it's a vitamin in the morning, and it's a, it's a blend of various different non psychedelic uh, mushroom compounds, and then you know maybe a teensy tiny little little pinch of magic in there and it just kind of cuts the tail off anxiety and gives things like I feel a little uh, less tacky where things don't stick to me as much. If I get a twinge of hunger or a twinge of anxiety or criticism, it goes and just goes away like every other thought. You know what I mean? So everything gets its due attention and no more. And how much much beautiful. How what's much, that? How much mushroom do you eat to do this microdose? I mean, extremely, extremely tiny, like less than a tenth of a gram. So, yeah, it's but it's a but it's helped a lot with the any the the OCD, the compulsion stuff, the obsession stuff. Waking up and going like, I have to get X, Y, and Z done. I have to get the if I don't do this, I'm going to fail the day, kind of thing. Like that has gone. That's interesting because I wake up every morning with some little anxiety agenda like that. And then I get up and go about my day and that stuff doesn't bug me all day. It's just enough to sort of goose me up in the morning, but it's not like I obsess on that shit all day. So what's up with that? Why would your, why would your brain send you such an annoying signal at such an inconvenient time? And it's not as urgent. Obviously, when you get up and get about your day, it's not as urgent as it was when it kicked you out of bed in the morning. What's up with that? It's funny. It's so true. I don't know. And and it, and it, at the worst times, and especially during the pandemic, my wife being in healthcare and all of that, like that before my eyes would even open, it was you're in a pandemic. Your wife's on the front line. She's probably going to get it, probably going to bring it home. There's nothing you can do about it. You should probably try to go get some more Lysol today. Um, you know, like all oh, bang, boom, 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 like, like just, <laughs> and it's just uh, a funnel of like a trap, really a mental trap. And then, but what's been nice with this experience has been, it's just kind of, you know, those things have the same half life that. The good thoughts do. <laughs> so it's not like I'm walking around, you know, handing out sunflowers to people and, you know, but if I get annoyed, it goes away like it should. If I... Do I get it? Does she understand it? No. Oh, COVID? At the COVID. 
Oh, good. She, she didn't paid. get COVID, and she was in the front line, and yeah, uh, she, was. she was literally, you know, every day putting on the full beekeeper kind of, you know, gear. And uh, but she says some of the, you know, we're we're having a couple conversations with friends who are anti-vaccine right now, and we don't understand. Like, it's like they they ask questions until they hear what they want to hear. You know what I mean? Like, she's off the clock. She's worked sixty hours. We're relaxing, having a good time. And then they hit her with, well, I heard that, you know, if I don't have comorbidities, then, you know, and she's so, God bless her. She keeps her patience until she finally goes like, you know, if I had a camera, if I was able to like record what I've, what I saw and I could show you people hunched over on their stomachs so their lungs don't fill with fluid, way younger than all of us, then maybe yeah. you'd change your mind, but you go ahead and do what you want with the, you know. So she's handled it well, but a lot of nurses she was with, I mean, that's the long-term effect of this that we haven't even seen yet is what some of these nurses and doctors and, you know, what they had to witness. Yeah. We've been, I've been reading some of the articles about the long COVID. I'm glad you guys dodged that bullet, man. That must've been an intense period. I didn't. I got it. My whole family got it. So. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. Both kids, everybody. Okay. Yeah. Everybody. It's actually when I got the shot was probably 50 to 75% harder, like more painful than when I actually had COVID. <clears throat> but we got it last March, like right at um, Madison Square Garden. We were in New York the day. They declared at yeah. the epicenter. We did the gig that night and left, and a bunch of people got it then. But I, so I got it right at the beginning. Wow. Jess showed up first, me about a day later, then Nigel a day later, then Kavi a day later. And uh, everybody's up. Yeah, I mean, it was for for me. It was milder than a lot of flus that I've had. A lot milder. Glad it's just that. one night of really, you know, just achy and feeling uh, cold and hot and the whole just thing. And then it was over. But the cough stuck around for a long time. But, yeah, we definitely didn't dodge it. <laughs> you right. know, it was crazy. I see. That's what blows me away. Like, it's just so wild how some people right in the thick of it didn't get it. And other people who, like, stayed home forever and went out maybe to get the mail once. <laughs> God, yeah. It's just such a strange thing. And and I guess that's also the power of saying I don't know. <clears throat> All these know-it-alls <clears throat> kind of, like, tend to, well, I don't need to wear a mask. I'm going to be fine. Blah, blah, blah. And then they get it. But it's the folks who we haven't admittedly heard have no. Nugent since he went down with it. I see. Did he get it? Right. Got it after all that, <laughs> you know, how, how bullshit he got it. And I, we have not heard from him, not, not a moment of contrition from that character. So I know I'm not supposed to feel good when the boneheads get it, but I always do. I'm like, yeah, you know, like, what's wrong? You just want the karma to get settled, don't you? I just, yeah, and you know, to. it's like, I didn't do it. Can I just enjoy watching it happen? <laughs> You know, you know one of the hardest. <laughs> you know, one of the hardest moments of the whole thing was we, when we were here. I'm, I'm right outside New York, you know, and that's like where it was super hard. And we really weren't allowed to do anything. 
they said stay in the house and you know whatever and when she'd get home from work she was exhausted and she had one day off and she goes let's just go for a drive so we went for a drive down by the sound like long island sound and there's beaches and stuff and it was like the first warm days last may i'd say still everyone's supposed to be at home everyone's 100 percent supposed to be wearing masks and all that and we drive by the beach and the beach is absolutely packed with people not wearing masks and and just like no social distancing at all and and there's like a police car sitting like right there observing the whole thing or whatever and she just goes well all these people are going to be in the hot like they're all going to be in the hospital in the next couple weeks and it just defeated her so much and it pissed me off for her it was like man just think about other people for once, for Christ's sake, you know, like that part really bothered me a lot. You know, they, they, this, well, that's, that's the modern American culture, man. The, the right wing has weaponized selfishness. That's really what it's all about. This is all about, don't you dare make me accommodate anybody else, you know? Yeah. And, and it, it just, it, the, it drives me nuts, man. I've lost a couple of friends in the middle of all this. I, I gave up a regular gig at a dispensary in Nevada when I found out that the owner's a fucking Trump skull. How a guy could vote for a man who would throw him in jail for doing his business just blew my mind. <laughs> and, and, and I couldn't shake him from this. And he, he thinks Nancy Pelosi is a greater danger to society than Donald Trump. I thought, I don't want to know you, man. I cannot do business with a person who thinks that way. That is, it's just not rational. Yeah, but it's a lot of this country, you know. I know. It's I lost amazing. another one, another promoter, uh, festival promoter that I used to work with a lot in Ohio. Also, same thing. It's like, go, oh, the you know, look at Joe Biden. He can't even finish his sentence. Fuck you. That came from Fox News, man. You watch Joe Biden talk and then you tell me you think he's impaired. You know, it's just the, the utter unreality of the world those people live in scares the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. I think that's not just on the on the right side, though, man. We're in a lot of unreality. On no, that's what I mean. All yeah. the, uh, out here in California, Marin County, a super high end economic stratum, right? There's a lot of like anti-vax in that world. It's like hippies. You're supposed to be healthy and, yeah. and to, you know, it's like don't be I know, science. I know a lot of about us here. For God's sake, yeah. It's a, it's a slippery slope, though, with the anti-science thing, though, because, like, I've been talking about this a lot. Like, the CDC said you don't have to wear masks anymore if you've been vaccinated. So I'm following the science if I don't wear a mask. I'm but they're the science. What's that? Uh, I said well, I'm just following the science. But there's a social aspect to that. Yesterday, I went to the local grocery store that I've been shopping at through all this stuff, and their sign has changed. And now they say if you if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. So I walked in without my mask, but I, everybody else in the store had their mask on, and so I just put my mask on. It's like yeah. why are people uncomfortable? Yeah, I'm why, with you on that. And, and I and I do that as well. Yeah, just decent. Yeah. Yeah, I went to get a pizza at my local place and I stepped one foot in the door and the guy goes, 
Wear a mask if you want to wear a mask. Don't wear a mask if you don't. I don't want to hear about fucking politics. I don't want to hear about if someone comes in not wearing one, don't yell at them. All I want to do is make goddamn pizza. And he just like gave, it was such an amazing. I was like, this is great. This is so great. He goes, I don't want to hear fucking anything. He's like, we could talk sports. We could talk pizza. And that's it. And I was like, all right, all right, cool. <laughs> I just know I'm really, I've, I had a, a lot of the, uh, like designer mass and which was fine while it was cold but as soon as it got hot around here i was like dude i'm over this so then i went back to the really just the little surgical the thin ones that are not yeah. making it you know like it's impossible to breathe when it's 95 degrees and you have like one of those yes. uh it's hard so but i've you know i've i, I had to like just i do whatever what, what everybody's comfortable with you know, they say, if I'm vaccinated, I'm cool. I'm like, I'm cool. That's why I got a vaccine. So I don't have right. to wear this thing. You know, I wear them on planes anyway, because of uh, I was doing that before the pandemic started just for the recycled air and it messes with my sciences. So I was planning on doing that for the rest of my life anyway. You know, but, wearing a mask while riding a bicycle turned out to be an interesting you get stuck oh, and heavy, you know. It's I never could do that, and and that's our thing. Like me and my buddy Arthur did have ridden eight thousand miles together. Wow! And it's very flat here in Florida, and yeah. I absolutely refused to wear a mask when I was riding because it was just like the humidity down here is so heavy, like it's impossible for me anyway. I was like, I'm gonna fall over, you know. But nobody was out. We were like literally the only people out you know, riding at the beginning and then I, I, yeah, you're also riding on a trail that's like riddled with alligators and shit too. So I, yeah, <laughs> bigger outdoors. fish to fry. And I already had COVID. I was like, what? Leave me alone. You know, like yeah. <laughs> Just... I'm with you a hundred percent though, David, on the whole, like, you know, if, if you walk into a place and like, I just went to see J rad this Saturday in new Haven at Westville music bowl. Phenomenal venue, by the way. Great setup, and uh, but not one person had a mask. It, the The staff had a mask, um, but no one had one on. And and it was just when you're in a situation like that where everyone doesn't have one, you're like, okay, you almost kind of forget for a second about what we've been going through. And then if I'm at CVS pharmacy and everyone has a mask, I run back out to the car and grab it and throw it on. I mean, I don't think if, if your ego isn't running the show, then it's really yeah. not that big of a deal. Yeah. I just keep it in my pocket. Yeah. Read the room as yeah, I go in throw and a I, bandana keep, on your, right. I keep Nigel's in my other pocket and then Jess will have Kavi or something. You know what I mean? Like if we're running around doing mm. father and son stuff, then yeah. I, at our store, it's David, half and half, you know. Have you been getting out to do uh, to play shows or to attend shows? Or I, tomorrow, I'm playing a gig, an outdoor gig in front of people at a brew pub, and it's it's the first time I've played outside the house half a dozen times since the thing started. Uh, four of those were on my front lawn. I, yeah. I started April 4th of last year. I, I try to start scheduling like a live streaming show and I, and I, well, he, so-and-so's doing this and he's doing that then. And I thought, well, if I wait till nobody else is streaming, I'm never going to play. So I started playing every day. I just said, I'm going to play every day at four and see if anybody shows up. 
And I started playing every day and I just, it turned out great. I acquired a group of a couple of dozen regulars that are literally there every day. It's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And a few times I invited Scott Guberman over a couple times and we set up on my front lawn and we live stream from my front lawn, just run a little ethernet cable out from the router to the front lawn, right? So we did that a couple of times and I have a buddy, Jeff Hobbs, who's, who's a multi-instrumentalist and he came over, we played on my front lawn once. So that's, that's pretty much it. Um, my, a band that I play with does original music called the Yerba Buena Orchestra. We did a Bread and Roses, a volunteer gig. We entertained down at the, down by the Oakland Coliseum, the uh, Alameda Community Food Bank distributes food a couple of days a week. They just, you know, they give away, you know, like 50 pound boxes of produce to anybody who needs one. And so Bread wow. and Roses, which is this wonderful organization that Mimi Farina started back in the 70s to bring music to shut-ins and stuff. I've played all, I've played locked wards and, and homes and stuff. So we played in the tent, uh, entertaining the workers who were giving away the food and people that were driving by in their car with their trunk lid open, got to listen to a little bit of us. So that was really fun. We played for a couple hours one morning, but that's been wow. it for my playing in front of people. So tomorrow there's a new, uh, uh, a new uh, beer place that opened in on Tam, in Tam Junction in Mill Valley, California, just down the hill from Bobby's place. And I'm playing a three-hour set tomorrow afternoon. It'll be the first time I've played like a regular show under my own name in front of people in 15 months, 16 months. Wow. Wow. Excited about doing it. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And I'm going to live stream from there. So I'll do my daily live stream. It's just going to be a three-hour show that starts a little later. Everything got easier all through this. I bought a really nice camera called Amiibo that's got a built-in Wi-Fi system and stuff. You just set it up and, and it, it, your phone is the interface to the world, right? So I bring mm. this little camera, set it up in front of my stage. And when I start playing, I just turn it on on my iPhone and it starts streaming through Facebook. It's just ridiculously <laughs> easy. That's wow. Great. That's really cool. So how easy it all is now. To be your own TV station. I've had so much fun. I, I have never felt more appreciated and heard in my entire life. And I've been a performer for 50 years. Nice. Have people that listen to me every day, that send me requests every morning, you know, that it's just been so wonderful. And it's it's not that I, you know, I didn't feel like I had a, a reasonably happy career as a working musician before. But I just felt I've never felt so connected to a particular group of people that are really listening, really appreciating it and really giving me feedback. You know, so that's, that's been great. And that's going to carry me out back into the world of real, you know, playing. It's just it, it's just sort of a nice little moral boost along the way. I'm looking forward to getting back out there and playing, but I'm not sure I'm going to give up the live streaming thing. I think whenever I'm home, I'm just going to go ahead and do it because it's so much fun. It's been awesome for my chops, man. And when but it's that easy to do, too. Never better. That's awesome. It, it, it is so... Uh, it, well, you know, I, I listen to your... Uh, to, to Tales from the Golden Road religiously. And uh, 
after going to J-Rad Saturday, and it was my first time seeing Grateful Dead music outdoors at like a... I saw Teal at the Cap, and that was indoors, my first indoor experience, and it was great, and I mean, the music was phenomenal, and being in Garcia's, and everyone was so happy. It was like a homecoming, like a Thanksgiving or something, you know? And then to go to like spend time in a lot and see all the people selling their tie-dyes and people running into each other who haven't seen each other in forever and then going into the show and being able to kind of like look at this outdoor bowl venue and it's pouring rain and they start playing brown eyed women and the whole place just kind of like, you could just feel the release from the 15 month tension, you know, and, and everyone's hugging and it was emotional. It was extremely emotional. And it also, reinforced something that someone talked about this week when they called you about just the healing properties of this music. Yeah, It's just, it's, it really is something with, I've seen some music, but Grateful Dead music, those lyrics and, and the singing along and, and everybody kind of just feeling it. And, and there's something incredibly powerful about this. And it was wonderful to hear that person call. I forget who it was, but they used Grateful Dead music in therapy. Yes. Well, we had a, another a follow-up call later from a woman in Arizona who was responding to that call. But that's that's been that, that's one of those things about this music. I, I've always thought like playing in the band was a perfect example of that. It's a song that's got this kind of little philosophical conversation going on in it. If a man among you got no sin upon his hand and all that, and then they give you this little thought to cogitate on and then they go off in this beautiful meditative jam for you to think along with it and that's one of the things i've always loved about this music is that it gives you something to think about and then it gives you a sweet little atmosphere in which to do that thinking and you can dance or you can sit and contemplate but that that's one of the things about grateful dead music that i think sets it apart from a lot of other jam band music is the depth of it I'm sorry, but Fish is never going to make you cry like Robert Hunter and Jerry Garcia. <laughs> with, with tremendous respect for Fish's musicianship, Keller Williams once said in an interview in um, Acoustic Guitar Magazine that he, he he said something like, "I don't like to hear about people's problems when I'm at a show, so I don't write about my problems." And I thought, well, you're missing out on half of what life is about if you don't include the dark stuff in your songwriting. You know, it's like to to I want the full range of experience in this music. And that's what Grateful Dead did that just kind of made it a, a, a deeper experience for you. You know, the, the songs really had something to say to you and they required you to think along with them. Hunter's lyrics were open enough that they were like a pencil sketch and you had to fill in the details and the color in that drawing. So everybody's version of that picture was different. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you totally. go through really bad stuff, uh it makes you more aware and hopefully more grateful of when things are good because you know like when mm. just things are just ho-hum like just not bad things are actually amazingly great you know and i i always try to remind myself of that when i'm sick mm. like if i have the mm. flu i just feel like crap or if i have a migraine it's like, man, remember when you're just at baseline, just how great, insanely great that is and how yeah. grateful you should be, you know, much less to have like a real health struggle, like to have cancer yeah. or have, 
you know, or just somebody else in your life, you know, any kind of thing that you go, that's why all the bad stuff is so important. I mean, it's, it, you can't, you don't know what good is without it. Yeah. You can't appreciate yeah. the light without having experienced the dark and that Grateful Dead shows the second set of a Grateful Dead show was always this incredible spiritual journey. And it would go through that, the scary stuff, you know, about abstract music and the drums in space. And then Jerry would sing some beautiful deep ballad like Wharf Rat or, or Black Peter Stella you know, Blue. would really take you all the way into the quietest places of the soul. And then bang, sugar magnolia, good loving, celebrate, motherfuckers. And it celebrate. was all of that. You had to get all the way. And Jerry once told in Blair, he gave an interview to Blair Jackson once, and he talked about how every second set, there's a moment, a perfect silence at a moment in that second set. And it's always in Stella Blue or it's in Warfright. You know, there's a perfect silence mm. in the middle of all that. And then it comes all the way back up again to the end of a Grateful Dead show. Just the full range of emotion was available. Yeah. It's like that moment right after a rainstorm or something when like that steam is kind of coming off. And as someone, I'd be remiss if I didn't say I've bawled my eyes out very hard at many a fish show. I have to say that <laughs> it definitely does do it for me and it does for a lot of other people. But I do know what you mean. I think there's a difference in the in the in the emotions. You know what I mean? And and uh, the, the we've talked with Kreutzmann and, and John Mayer last couple weeks ago about how Otil, you mentioned that there were times that like Jerry's voice or Jerry's playing will just stop you in your tracks. Well, after my brother died, you know, I would be, and I'm still at a point where I was learning a lot of uh, of trying to learn Jerry tunes to sing, you know, so I'd just be playing it around the house and it would just like either his guitar or that, that doggone voice, you know, and it would just like, Whatever you're doing, you know, you're doing folding a shirt and then you're just sitting there stopped, <laughs> you know, yeah. and very healing. I and, and again, if my brother had died, right, it's in that deep pain that revealed to me like how healing it was where uh, before it was just going by me, you know, and mm-hmm. then it felt like, uh, you know, when you put something on a burn like aloe vera, like mm-hmm. real aloe yeah. vera on a burn. That's what, and I was like, wow, wow. That pain revealed it, you know? I need to interject while we're having this moment here. Oteal, how much I appreciate your singing of those songs. I, oh, it, thank you, man. I really, I really love hearing you sing those. I think, again, like what you were talking about, that pain, it was a matter of timing, because I think it's the time in my life when I was starting to sing them, you know, we were losing so many people. It hasn't stopped. It's just a long exodus, you know. And um, I was like, it's all timing, man. Plants bloom when they're supposed to bloom. And uh, so thank you. But I really think that I I couldn't have done it before at any earlier time in my life because I just hadn't been through enough shit, you know. We we understand what singing is, and I've that's another profound experience I've had playing this stuff every day. I'm keeping track. I've played like looks like rain seventy some times since I started doing it, right? <laughs> and I started. I picked up a couple songs I hadn't done before, 
And I started doing the days between. Mm, mm, and I, I've loved yeah. the song since the first time I heard it. And I've been playing it. I'm in a band with this Hawaiian guy, Stephen Inglis. And I've, I've stood behind him just accompanying him while he played that song, just deeply, deeply enjoying that song. And then I started singing it myself. And it took it to a whole nother level. I was like crying a few times when I started doing it. Because that song, it's such a deep story about them, but it's also about us. Because yes. we were there. We walked halfway around the world with them, you know. And mm. it's been such a profound experience to sing those songs and to inhabit them, you know. That's and, one of three that I'm definitely afraid of. Um, Fortunately for you, Bobby's singing that one. <laughs> well, but I mean, it, it just separate yeah. from Dead and Company because I do a lot with my band that I that we don't do with Dead and Company. But I've always been in fear of uh, standing on the moon, days between, and morning dew. They're just songs that put you in your place. It's kind of like. Whether you believe in God or not, if you were to be in the all of a sudden standing before God, you would probably put your head down, <laughs> you know, because yeah, you just, it's all, you know, the awe, it just oh, puts you, you in your place. You know what I mean? Play morning do. There's something to, well, such a monumental and, song in, in the Grateful Dead's canon. And it's not even original, you know. Right. Very, but that's one of those great contrasts. You listen yeah. to, to Bonnie Dobson's version. And then what the Grateful Dead made it into? I mean, that's yeah, like yeah. tremendous musical achievement. It's like chamber music in Grateful Dead land or something. But to see you, I, I, I watched O'Teal sing Morning Dew at Garcia's, and it was just one of those perfect moments when there's that poster on the wall right to where I was watching. It's like a huge Jerry, and you're standing right parallel to him, and you're singing Morning Dew, and it was just... Perfect. I mean, it was just, you had everybody in that room, like, on their toes. Like, everyone was, like, just in complete and utter, like, you know, joy and awe watching you do Morning Dew there. And it was just fantastic. Thank and you. because it's the moment, it's not that whole perfect thing. You know what I mean? Like, that song, but we all needed that at that moment. there's something in there that's, you know, like, there's not much to Morning Dew. It's like, why are you so deathly afraid of it? You know? And then I would try it, and it's like, you, there's nothing there but letting out what's really in there, like letting that pain out. It's not about anything technical. You know, Melvin asked me to sing Standing on the Moon one time. I think we were at the Warfield. I can't remember. And I was like, I don't know, man. I, that one. It's a, really? another thing. There's nothing to it, but it's just like you really got to like let it out, right? So I was like, for if Melvin asked me, you know, Melvin asked me to do Gamora, I was just like, all right. So if Melvin asked you, you just do it. <laughs> and so I tried it and it just was not there. And I said, Melvin, I'm just not. And he was like, yeah, it's not right, you know. And it wasn't hurtful, but it was like it either is or it isn't. And he was like, it's not. Yeah, let's let's do something else. It's great that he respected your decision on that. I, 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 yeah. I, you, one of the things that bugs me about our musical culture is how many people don't take the vocals as seriously as they need to. 
You know, yeah. you, you know, Otiel, Jerry had a, a sort of a high tenor and a lot of people can't hear his notes. Dude, it's hard. Like, uh, must have been the roses. It just stays up there. I transposed a lot of his songs down. I do Scarlet really? in G. Yeah, really? I, I don't want to try and hit his notes. And I don't, yeah. uh, to me, I, I'm not, I don't need to play the song the same way he did because I don't need to yeah. play the licks the way he did. I'm, I'm in, I, I'm, adapting them for solo looped performance right yeah. so i'm keeping this stuff i need to but i'm more interested in the essence of the song than in replicating anybody else's presentation of it and i just i, I just feel like uh, a responsibility to do the song in my own voice that's what jerry taught me yes. you know like tell the story in your own voice nobody complains that jerry doesn't sing um didn't sing morning do the way bonnie dobson did jerry yeah did right morning do the way jerry sings morning do right yeah. so i'm singing morning do I, I i i very rarely do it it doesn't really lend itself to the solo thing but I do days between a lot and I just feel like I, I got my own deep relationship with that yeah. song. And I'm telling the story in my voice, not pretending to be somebody else. And I yeah. wish more people would work harder on their singing in this, in this culture. Well, Bob stressed that a lot about, you know, he seeks to become the character in the yes. song or the storyteller or whatever. And, that's what's so profound about, you know, like some people may prefer my morning do over Bob's, but when I listen to Bob saying that, he means that shit so yeah. much, man. Yeah. I could cry thinking, I mean, he just, he really, and it, it's nice to be next to him when he's really just like, it's opera. You know, and and he's singing it for his brother. I mean, oh, like when, when he does the days it. between, it's like that's all, all just it, he's man. giving it all up yeah. to Jerry, and it's just so evident. Yeah, so evident. It's kind of why I love this Wolf Bros thing that he's oh, doing, God. man. I just yeah. think that it's just so incredible yeah. to like put his. It's such a Bobby take on things, you yeah. know, and it's just perfect. I mean, the the tempo, the the sound, the the horns, the whole thing. It's just perfect. Pedal steel. It, he's a cowboy. He always has yeah. been, you know, and, and I love that. But like to your point with Jerry too, like, you know, one of my favorite albums that I ended up kind of stumbling across at a very early, not for kids only yeah. was one of my favorite, you know, and it, it's just Jerry and David doing these old kind of, you know, Americana kids tunes, I guess, but Freight Train is on that, that Elizabeth Cotton song. And it's just the way that Jerry sings that. And it's just like, you know just bury him down by the creek and tell him all I've gone to sleep and the whole thing. Like, it's just such a, it's a song about dying, but it's such yeah. a beautifully sung song. Like it's okay. Death is a part of this that we're all going to experience. And that to me was always something, you know, here's this guy that's known for Casey Jones and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, there's such a richness and a depth to him that uh, that's the stuff I love so much. <laughs> My bluegrass buddies crack me up because there's this cat named Jeff Autry. Great great guitarist and uh you know bluegrass was the first happy music that i've related to and then it opened the door to gospel for me because i preferred the dark you know miles modal mm. i just was that was how i was kind of tuned up you know but then when i got into the bluegrass you know you're playing it's like real major and up and bright and then the lyrics are like 
really dark. And Autry goes, man, this is some morbid shit, isn't it, O'Teal? I was like, yeah, it is. It's like a crazy like, juxtaposition, you know? And I started thinking, it's again, it's that dark light thing. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back after this. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at SmartWool. For more than 25 years, SmartWool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. Thanks for listening. You ever heard Unknown Henson? Oh, absolutely. Dude, Colonel Bruce and him were like this, dude. Oh, God. He, turned, was... he did some weird shit in the last year or two, but the first time I heard him was when I first landed in North Carolina about 20-some years ago, and I just thought he took the darkness of that music and made it manifest in the funniest way. He just is the funniest. He's like if Eddie Munster is an adult, it played rip. He's an amazing guitarist. Did you ever see him on Squid Billies? He did the voice no. on that on that cartoon. That's the weirdest. I want to play live once. I mean, this guy's got songs about a dude who's who's carrying a woman he loves around in the trunk of his car and shit. <laughs> got a song called "Closer to the Light," which is a kind of spiritual tune from a guy who's about to get. Um, Put to death. Really, really funny shit. <laughs> I love Dude, it. Dude, he is I such a it. character and a ripping guitar player. Oh, like, it uh, looks like Eddie Munster at like 50. <laughs> and just like so out, man. Him and the Colonel together was priceless. Oh, that must have been fun. Oh, my God. It was priceless. The <laughs> unknown hints. I'm so glad you hit me with that one. We got to get him on the podcast. Oh, my God. Uh, he, yeah, he's man. such a character. He's so dynamic. Oh, we could, yeah. You we take. Could, a, I think he got involved in some creepy shit in the last couple of years. I uh oh. Keep oh, no. an eye on. He might have suddenly uh, might might have made himself unpalatable. I, I forget. Oh well. Isn't it, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, the, the Me Too era might have caught up with him or something. I don't know. Oh, unknown. It all becomes known. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> So a three-hour set, David. Let's get back to something happy. A three-hour set. That's gonna be uh that's gonna be a hoot. I'm I'm I have many things to think about. For one thing, I've been playing sitting down for a year and a half, and I really <laughs> like that. I've, Me I've, too. I've, I've learned I've learned how to how to move the air sitting down. I can sing just as well sitting down as I do standing up now, and I really like it. And I think I may play the show sitting down. Scott Guberman played there last week, and he plays the piano sitting down, so I figure I can probably sit down, too, and get away with it. Oh, yeah. But I've been playing one-hour sets and a, an hour and 15 minutes on Monday, and this will be the first time I played three hours in a really long time. That's a long show. I'm pretty show. sure I've, I've got the stamina to do it, but it'll be interesting to feel like pacing a show. It won't be like a concert, because it's a brew pub, right? People will be coming in and out and shit. So it's just going to be a three hour. I, I, in a certain way, I felt like my daily thing has been kind of like a hippie piano bar anyway. Right. Because I played like 400 different songs. I've been playing stuff from my entire performing career and playing things like Moon Shadow and, and Father and Son, all these like, uh, you know, 
Jackson Brown tunes that I used to play when I was a kid. So I'm revisiting all of that stuff and several dozen of my original tunes and several dozen dead tunes and a lot of free improvisation with my looper and stuff. So I don't worry about filling the time at all. But it's it's just, it's going to be interesting to feel how a three-hour thing flows after. And I, I mean, also my regular touring thing, I play opening sets in clubs. I'll play like a 50, 60, 75-minute set and then sit in with an electric band later in the show, right? right. My usual touring thing now. So I've been playing like... I've, I've had a repertoire of maybe, you know, like 15 or 20 songs that tended to be what I would play over the course of a tour was those tunes, right? So here, instead, I'm exercising my entire life history and revisiting favorite old songs and stuff. So I'm looking forward to having an unstructured three-hour time slot with a bunch of people looking on who are generally favorable toward what I'm doing. And I figure I can... I can um, lean on my strongest stuff i can jam a little bit i can sing my as loud as i want to out there and it'll be fun so i'm looking yeah. forward to it um and not really concerned about it i think it's just mostly just going to be really really loose fun sure i'm worried well, that- man my back it's but these six string basses <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's tough man i did a couple of gigs i was like man i need to channel my george porter he could sit down and nobody gets bumped out if i sit down people are like what's wrong I'm like <laughs> what just give me a kiss robert sylvester sits down a lot on stage these days too i think these things are heavy you know like yeah when it's time to get up and do it i'll get up and then but if you know we're gonna chill out can't let me sit down <laughs> My guitar is not heavy. I played one of Jerry's. He let me play one of his guitars back in 81. I forget which one it was. It might have been Wolf or something. That fucking thing was heavy. He Those Olympics. That shit. Those are heavy guitars. Those are heavy like basses. So imagine the basses. So really had, do you train for that? You know, I was uh, doing a lot more yoga. Um it's easier to two kids around. <laughs> yeah. It's easier when the kids are not like if I'm on the road and the kids are not around, it's really easy for me to do yoga in the morning and then do my bike ride or whatever. Just the routine thing is a lot easier, but you, um, like, a, uh, I mean, is your spinal column going to be stressed by carrying that damn thing? So for, for a long time again, I, do you do stretches and things like that? Yeah. I mean, the yoga stretches it out. And then I also have a teeter. I have an inversion. Uh, table and they actually have one on the road with dead and company so my back is usually much better on the road because i'm like (laughs) doing the yoga every morning like literally like probably six mornings out of seven and on the inversion table and but i think i'm also gonna do the chair thing people are just gonna have to like let me channel my george porter a little bit. I'm going to make a Leto Teal sit. Teacher. Leto Teal sit. Yes. <laughs> I'm with that. Oh, thank you. You know, it's kind of, you got it, brother. You got it. But you know what, though? It is true. You said something that was interesting and that I think that like it's almost easier when you're on the road to get into the rhythm you need to get into to survive being on the road. It's war. Like right yeah, now is that. Like, yeah. It's like thinking about it and even with stand up and it's like I'm not carrying a huge bass around. I'm just carrying 
30 years of anxiety with me, <laughs> which is just Still, on the spine. <laughs> same war, though. I mean, if it's absolutely if it's, if it's, if it's messing up your mind or messing up your spine, you whatever. Are to hide behind. I don't have anything to hide behind, man. All I got, all I have is, hey, guys, give it up for your staff. And then I just <laughs> take a deep breath and drink water. And no, but I, I, I can do what you do, Mike. Uh, I know it. Uh, thank you. But I, 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 it's, it's been weird getting back into it. It's been, you know, like we had plexiglass in front of us, separating us and the crowd for a little bit. And David, the funniest thing was that if you looked at it right, your reflection would be looking back at you off of the plexiglass. So if you bomb, your <laughs> conscious is looking back at you going, quit, kid, you stink. <laughs> so that was rough. But the crowds have been, you know, you were talking about a three hour. I was just thinking about if I had to do a three hour set, I'd, I, I the, my first thing back was uh, like a headlining thing in Providence where I had to do like an hour for 55 minutes to an hour, you know, to wrap the show up. And uh, I went up like, oh, I'm going to do all this new stuff and all these thoughts I thought during the pandemic. And I'm going to be, you know, I've turned a corner and 2.0 Mike and. Nope. I, I about 30 seconds of of uh bombing and I just started playing the hits. <laughs> I was like I got to get back into this, man. It was rough. You know, I don't I don't I don't worry about that. I'm I know that I'm good at what I do and I feel like at this point I can deliver a solid performance anytime and it's really just a matter of whether people like what I do or not. Sure. Yeah, so I don't, of course. I don't I don't have that existential crush. Right. fear anymore ever when i perform i just don't you know i feel wow, like i wish i could get that yeah well, i had I, 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 the first time i remember the day that i solved stage fright it was in 1986 and it was when jerry was down with his coma and the barsotti brothers put together this thing called night of the living deadheads just a way to put the community together and dig some stuff and we and we actually recorded an interview with jerry that we played at the event and stuff like that you know mm -hmm. but my band was invited to play and i thought oh fuck man i'm playing for all the bgp people here and the barsotti <laughs> brothers and what if i no suck? pressure well but and i had the conversation with them wait a minute they asked you to come hmm. Yeah, they, they asked you to come and play because they think your band is good. So what? What's the worry? And I just from and th in that moment, I just from then on, I just have not had that thing of like, oh my god, they're going to hate me. And I, I've see gotten, for me, it's not. Are they going to hate me? It's. I feel like people have the expectation of me on my that I on my best night, right? Yeah. I've had some really good nights, <laughs> but I don't feel that way all the time. And I'm like, can't, what if I just fall way short of that tonight? Because I certainly feel like I don't have this mojo that I had on whatever my best night was for whatever mm. myriad of reasons. So it's just always, you know, my critic just is, 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 but, but, operates a little differently, but, I guess, you know. You certainly must recognize that your standard, the standard that you're holding for yourself is infinitely higher than the one the audience is, is even able yeah. to level at you, right? Yeah, but they've still seen me on my best night when the standard I held for myself was like, yeah, yeah that was it. And everybody knew that was it. And so now there's always that. 
know? And I'm like, man, I'm 56 now. Like, I can't, you know? Did I ever tell you, Oteal, about that time? One time I was in Reno doing shows, and I was very early on. And I was, like, sitting after I got off stage. I would run over. We had three shows a night for, like, five nights straight at a casino uh, at Silver Legacy Resort. And I would get off stage and I'd hate myself because I'm like, I stink, I'm a hack, blah, blah, blah. And I'd sit down at my notebook and I'd be circling things and crossing off jokes and moving the last one to the top and whatever else. And this guy walks over and he was like such a road hack, kind of like, no no offense to him, but it was just like like popsicle stick jokes, you know? And he was he just comes over and he gave me the most unbelievable advice that I never forgot he goes, kid, you're, he goes, these people are never going to be in a room together ever again. He's like, just give them a night that, you know, just if you're having fun, they'll have fun. And it was something that made me realize, like, yeah, I chose to do this. Like, no one's making me do stand-up comedy. Like, I'm not doing this to keep the I'm, – I'm losing money, for Christ's sake, like, at that point in my career. And it's like, just remember that you chose to do this. Yes. And, like, that part is when I get, like, in my own head about – all of the things that, you know, being self-employed and doing, you know, are my jokes brand new and are they this and that? Yeah. I chose to do this. And that's the thing that gets me into that. Like what you were talking about, David, it's like, yeah, we all chose to be here. Like, it's not, I think it's, it's the love. Okay. It's the love that pulls me through. And I forget who, what it told me, but it was, it's just the idea of like, you know, and you look out in the audience in the case of with music, which is, you know, a different thing. They're really pulling for you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like if I make a mistake, chances are they're going to be like, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> like when Bob right, gets the line. Nobody's waiting to, to, to cut you down for it. And there yeah. might be some schmuck in the corner who's, who's yeah. is to, you know, critique everything. But really, I, I, I remember there was a, a woman that was working for me who started doing a, a DJ shift at, at KPFA, and she was, like, scared to death the first time she was going on. And I said, when you're listening to the radio, do you assume that the person that's talking to you is an idiot and that they're, they're a loser and that they suck? No, you assume that they know what they're doing and they belong there and they're, and they're there because they know what they're doing. So you're going to get that same assumption of competence from the people that, that are listening when you come on the air. So don't assume that they're looking for an excuse to, to kick yeah. your ass. And I, I, I think I just eased her mind enough that she went ahead and did it and it didn't lose her shit. And it all worked out fine. Yeah. yeah. Bill it's, Walton is good for me like that. <laughs> Bill could talk me off a ledge. Bill's the most positive person. I I have a competition with Bill because I insist that I'm the luckiest man in the world. (laughs) (laughs) He'll he'll give you a hell of a run convincing (laughs) convincing people that (laughs) I just also your neck will hurt after arguing with him. You're gonna need the inversion table. (laughs) Oh, the, I got to tell you guys the thing. One one time, the inversion table reminded me that Bob Weir used to have this gravity boot thing in his house. These hooks that you hang in the ceiling and you put these boots on and you'd hang from the ceiling. And I don't know what it was supposed to do, but he had that thing. And I once interviewed him in his house where we took turns hanging from the gravity boots while we did the interview. And my transcript actually says, Bob down, David up. <laughs> <laughs> that's great 
That's so cool. I'm always afraid of those things because I was like, I know that I'll screw it up and it's not put up right and I'm going to fall right on my head. You know, <laughs> like the table takes a minute for you to trust, but you can like, there's a way you can go slow. Like you can like yeah. ease into it. So you're not like, so yeah. Leave it up to Bob to have gravity boots. <laughs> of course he did. Well, this was 1981, so. <laughs> I love it, man. <laughs> Long time ago. David, are you going to hit the, are you staying predominantly in the, uh, the Pacific Northwest Bay area, West coast? Are you going to start hitting the road a little bit? Like what's your thoughts on that? Are you going to head East? I am. A lot of things. I, I'm waiting to make some decisions. One, one thing that happened was my booking agency went out of business in, in the pandemic because the two guys that were running it had to go feed their families. And so I'm now looking for new representation. Um, okay. And I'm talking to a guy, I, I, I've done, I, I've got two records that I want to get out. I've remixed my first album um, called Home by Morning that came out in 97. And it's got like Bobby Black on three tunes and David Grisman on three tunes, a bunch of great musicians. Daryl wow. Anger played on a track. Oh, so I'm looking great. for a label to put that out because it's a really nice Americana record. And then on April 15th, I did a session with uh, a cellist. My cousin, Stephen Katz, is a conservatory trained cellist. And we went into the studio together and just did an afternoon of pure improvisation. Just me and him just started playing to see what came out. And it was a wonderful experience. He he thought there was a sort of a genetic link. We oh. really had a musical affinity. We grew up separately, totally different musical traditions, but we just clicked. Yeah. It was amazing, a wonderful experience. And then I edited and mixed the whole thing. And now I got, I'm looking for a label to put that out too. Cool. Cool. So I have two records that I want to put out that are entirely different worlds. No idea how to get those into the world. And I want to start touring again, but I don't think I want to go out as much as I did before. I've really enjoyed being at home. My wife and I have a really nice groove going. She took up the ook and she practices the ook every day. Nice. And that wow. add a level of joy to this house. I can't. <laughs> yeah, but I, totally. I do want to go out and play again, and I do want to go to the East Coast again. But I don't think I'm going to do it until the, the maybe I, I we sort of had a, a decided that I wasn't going to get on an airplane before the end of the year. We may have to revisit that because things are opening up a little faster than I thought. But I don't really want to get back out and become like a road dog again. I'd rather yeah. more uh, do a fewer things that are cooler and spend more time at home. Uh, another thing that's going on is Jay Blakesburg and I are working on a book of my Grateful Dead photography. Oh, I, oh I, wow. I, I spent, I, I, in, when I started, I was a, a music journalist for about 10 years. From 76 to 86, I wrote for music magazines, you know, like Record and Rolling. I did one, I had one story in Rolling Stone. Wrote for BAM magazine for years, did a couple pieces for a musician, et cetera. And I always nice. took a camera with me. So I have, the, I have years and years and years of photos of all these different people and a bunch of Grateful Dead related stuff and some really interesting stuff that nobody else got, like a picture of Phil and his mom. And a picture uh, up at Phil's house one night, me and him and Kreutzmann, like fooling around with a steering wheel off a race car and things like that. So I have a bunch of sort of interesting Grateful Dead photos that nobody else ever saw. So Jay and I are working together to put, to, put it together a book. 
So I have three big projects that I want to place in the next few months. And as I say, I don't want to give up this thing of playing every day. When you when, when I, I was touring, I'd come home from a tour and I wouldn't pick up my guitar for a week. And I really like playing every day and I like singing every day. Yeah. So I want to sort of figure out a way to resume performing in public, but not in a way that winds up chopping my performing life into really small chunks that are widely separated. I don't want to like play regular weekly gigs in a bar at home or nothing either. But you know, it's like I want to figure out a balance so I can perform in a way that I really uh, that works for me, that makes uh, the money I need to make a, a, some money doing this. It's not the the only source of income that I have, but I need to make some money playing. Right. And so I'm I'm just going to figure out a way to sort of reset things that. Uh, is at a pace that suits my age and my place in life and my desire to um, stay creative, but uh, at a manageable pace. I've been hearing Perfect. that a lot of musicians that <clears throat> they're like, I'm, I'm ready to play again, but I don't know if I want to grind it as hard as I did before. Yeah. You know? So I think it's a good thing to, well, it's not, it's never a bad thing to have cultivated a good home life. Well, I had a good home life when I started. Now, I didn't yeah. I didn't start touring until I, I was already happily married and several years into that. So yeah. I, I, I wasn't young and stupid. I didn't, yeah. you know, I, I've never in my touring life stayed up all night, didn't chase women. Didn't, you know, it's like I was I already had a home life when I started touring. So I never participated in that stupid aspects of that lifestyle. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. so I've, I've been touring like an adult all along. <laughs> Lucky for you, because so many people. That's a good name uh, for a tour. Yeah. Touring like <laughs> an adult. Is touring like an adult. <laughs> I'm right, man. It's a rare thing, you know. <laughs> I know, totally. It's the most original tour ever, to be honest. I mean, if you're never home, how are you going to cultivate a home life? I mean, these guys are on the road like all the time, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've, I've known musicians who really kind of were only happy out there and whose home lives weren't particularly uh, uh, satisfying to them. And I just, that's not me, man. I, I waited a good long time to, to get married till I found the right partner. And I'm really, really deeply into this marriage with this amazing human being. And she's been great. She married a radio producer who stayed home. Four years into our marriage, I started being a touring musician. So she's been really, really great about yeah. accommodating all of that, and you know, yeah. And so there's, I, I, I cherish my home life tremendously. Yeah, that pandemic well, sure. Woo! It's I had a year of real bliss in that department, <laughs> you know. And Kavi, Kavi's only three, so she's never really known me to be gone. I left for 10 days one time and she's still talking about it. she's she hates Colorado. She has a whole a total bias. It took you away for 10 days. Yeah. Screw Colorado. That's her <laughs> bumper sticker. <laughs> you know? so, I was like, we got to go. It's really good. Copy, you know, so I'm kind of worried. She's just not used to it. And I've, I'm not used to it anymore either, you know, but uh, here we go. It's ramping here up. We here we come. Well, we're super excited to hear what you've recorded and, and yeah, to man. see these pictures, David. Thank you yeah. so much for, for spending some time with us. Oh, and, yeah. and 
appreciate the thing. I, I I always, you know, we, you and I have talked a bunch of times on, on, you know, microphones and stuff, but I always have to say thanks for tales from the golden road. And I, I just, God, I love so much. I listen for that caller that just is explaining an acid trip at like an 83 show. And he's like, did you guys see that elephant man? Cause I did like, I love that guy. <laughs> you know? We have had such a great batting average. We have had so few lame calls. I mean, it's, it's amazing how it's amazing. rare it is that we have to like ever hang up on anybody. Usually it's even rare that we have to like ease somebody off the air. Once in a while we get somebody who just starts talking and we can't find a path in it. That, that happened yeah. when I came on your show, this lady called <laughs> <laughs> I was there for I was one of those rare ones and she just like she took a left and Mayor actually texted me just like because <laughs> he was listening you know, at the time I don't remember he was out the road or something oh god I it was funny that. I love that well, <laughs> but even the, that the was great about, you know yeah and the thing about their show is that they David and, and, and Gary don't go the theme of today's calls are blank what ends up happening is like organically it turns into like it it gains a, a life of its own each episode you know right. and someone will be like oh i'm calling about the person that called two times ago about yeah. jerry band and blah 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 and, and it all follows into this night i love it but i absolutely love continuity. it at the very beginning when when they they proposed this to us just a month or two into the existence of the channel it's the end of 2007 and they they wanted to do like they they called it they wanted to do like a roundtable show get get two or three experts and sit down and talk about a subject you know and the first show that we did we invited Eric Christensen who had done a, a, a documentary on the Trips Festival so we did a show about the Trips Festival with Eric and I think we might have lined up a few phone guests and stuff and it just went really great and they thought it was going to be a once a month thing. And everybody liked it so much, they decided to make it a weekly thing. And very, very quickly, like two or three shows into it, we realized that attempting to create a structure for it was a mistake. Yeah, right. It would, you know, it's like, it, this, this, there's the same reason I never make a set list when I'm playing a show. Mm. I don't want to decide ahead of time what the path is going to be. I want to feel my way through it in real time and play the next song that makes sense now. So the calls come in as they tend to do, and we field them and we improvise around them. I, it's I think it's the perfectly Grateful Dead way to do this. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's so great. And as someone who's always loved calling radio, it's it's just great when someone has a story that they think is going to send you off on this amazing "I know what you mean" story, and it doesn't. And you go, uh huh, <laughs> and they go. So, yeah, I just wanted to tell you that. And I really think you guys are doing a great thing. And then they like panic. It's like just finally you get to know what it's like to be a comic where it's like you think something's <laughs> going to make this fucking giant, you know, and there's nothing. And then you go, uh, so, yeah. And, uh, you know, but it's so great to hear those calls backpedal and try to keep the ball that, in the air. Mike, because I, I, I really feel like musicians operate in much larger chunks of information. I mean, you're living and dying every 15 seconds really yeah totally we have like 10 minute songs you know like <laughs> our our cycle of of death and dying and life and death is much longer than yours and you how do you deal with the stress of that well again i think it's like you had 
had both said in your experiences that it's like, you know, it's kind of like that learning originally. See, I could tell someone who's new or a little green behind the ears by how fast one joke follows the next. Like they're afraid of silence. They're afraid of like, we're all, and when we're starting out afraid of silence, now I kind of love it because I personally like to take a premise and almost pose it as a question and see what I get from the audience as a reply, which I already know where I'm going to go with it, regardless of what answer they throw me. But it keeps me always keeping a census, if you will. So I use every crowd almost as like a test for the next one. So like if I throw a topic out about, you know, my dad or about, you know, microdosing or about things that I'm, you know, it gives me a chance to kind of keep it conversational, keep it where this is the tempo we're going to be at. And it frees me up to associate with the crowd and take a pause. Getting back on stage was, was difficult with the pandemic. One of the times I got back on stage, I asked a girl a question and she went off on this like, long answer and i just turned to the rest of the crowd and i go sometimes doing crowd work can be a crapshoot <laughs> and that just created this big like moment you know so it's just it's i think and not to sound super you know gratuitous toward the grateful dead but i i really do feel like it's that thing of making each show different and being okay with them all not being 100 percent per if you kill all the time on stage as a comic you're doing something wrong you know, like you're just, you're not right. taking chances. You're not taking risks. You're not. So I think it like, you get to a point where you go, like you said, David, like I, I know how to do this. Like I've, I've, I've done every horrible gig. I've done every incredible gig. You know, I've done from a, from a laundromat to radio city music hall and everything in between. So it's like, I have to remember that like, there is another show coming. So I personally kind of like, I try to make the staff, laugh <laughs> i think because if they're here they've heard everything and if they're laughing then i know it's worth working on you know what <laughs> i mean right. so um but it's again it's uh those those moments of hating myself afterwards like they still come but they come for different reasons like if i if i lean on a crutch of a joke if i i know some jokes that mathematically a plus b equals laughter and it may not be something i believe in and those are the moments i get mad at myself now when it's like I'm taking the easy way out instead of pushing a thought and forcing myself to go into deeper water and feel uncomfortable and all of that. But I also do have that other side of me. That's like these people paid for a show, give them a show. So there's this, that balance is kind of important too. So if I, if I weigh out and, and evenly distribute the jokes I know that are going to work so these people can write a good review and the club can stay open fine. <laughs> but I also need to, for my soul, dig deeper and deeper and deeper each time. So I'm, and again, I do think the microdosing is helping a lot with that. Just giving myself <laughs> that look back on like tonight was good and tomorrow will be okay too. So no individual moment is a make or break thing. Yeah. And even like, even if you had like a bad night, it doesn't it end your career, right? It's like all of the little peaks and valleys of our day-to-day -day existence or our moment-to-moment -moment existence on stage don't really affect the long-term trajectory of what we're doing, right? You'd have to have a, just a bunch of bad nights in a row 
before anybody else noticed and said, maybe this guy shouldn't be having this career. Well, that's what it is. Our monitoring of our progress is a private thing. And most of the world doesn't notice the the variations in what we're seeing every day. Amen. Yeah. Well, or or it's not even noticeable. Like I, I don't even, I, I don't, it's, I don't have the uh, 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 the experience of having a song completely flop. You know, it's like jo- songs don't bomb the way a joke can bomb. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and there are some jokes where it's like, how the hell does this not work? <laughs> like, I, it's conceptually, it's one of the most, like, the thing I'm the most happy about. And I'm like, how do they not see this? It's a funny perception, man. But, but then you want to know what it is? For not if I, it? Oh, I've, 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 yes, 100%. I've been like, I just say it. I'm like, you guys got to be out of your mind. Like, am I really the only one that doesn't? And then like someone will be, cause comedy, comedy clubs are still, uh, it's like an 80, 20 blend of 80% of people got a babysitter. It was you or the movies or you know, a concert, like it's what, what do you want to do tonight? I got this ticket, you know, Groupon in the mail thing. <laughs> and then there's 20% made up of like fans and comedy diehards. And those are the people where if I go like, really, you guys don't see how this is like, and there'll be like two or three of those comedy nerds that are like, we got it. We get it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like I totally, you know, but it again, it's that like, you, like you were just saying about, you know, does this guy deserve his career? I do think it's that you get to a point in your tenure where you're like, yeah, every, my, my career doesn't hinge on this joke killing or not. <laughs> it's actually more the offstage stuff. It's showing up on time. Yeah, it's being it. grateful. Take it's it, man. Giving the waitress a <laughs> hug and saying, thanks for being so awesome. And you know, it's the follow-up shit. That's why like anybody who's ever like, you know, how do you get into comedy and all that? And it's just like, just, be someone they want yes, to have. Exactly. There. I always try to make myself somebody that they're glad to see. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't leave such heavy footprints, you know? I mean, that doesn't mean take shit, like, you know, get paid and get what you deserve, but also don't leave a $300 unpaid drink tab and don't, you know, like <laughs> all that shit. Eat before you go. There's a million restaurants. You don't have to always take the free, you know, like, so I don't know. I, I I think it's all the stuff our grandparents taught us, you know, <laughs> like that's what you and I don't have the luxury of belonging to an organization that people arrange their lives around. Oteo has that great. <laughs> and I, we just have to sort of be the most interesting thing happening at In a two block tonight. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I have to be more humble. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, doing this Which side. Which is something I think the Grateful Dead probably taught us both, right? Yeah, David? man. Because doing being on this side of it, but there's so much attention on you. I don't know. It's humbling to me. It's it's frightening, really, which is humbling. You know, Oteil, tell him <laughs> about the time. Do you remember the time? Oteil came to see me do a long set, David, at the Comedy Cellar. And there were these two girls that were just, I mean, drunk, so drunk, talking the whole time. And it was a small, intimate, fat black pussycat in the West Village, right across from Blue Note. And what was there, Oteil? Maybe 30 people, 40 people? Yeah. And I'm like working out a long set, and I could hear these girls like talking, and Oteil's sitting behind them. And I go, ladies, I'm so sorry. Like, 
I can hear you talking. Like, if you don't want to be here, it's totally cool. But like, if you want to stay, can you please just, cause I'm not going to scream at the crowd. I think that's stupid. And they go, we're not talking. And the whole crowd's like, yo, you're totally talking. Like we could hear you talking. And then they go, you mean we can't like have a conversation with each other? And we're like, no, that's talking. And they go, that's it. We're leaving. And the girl walks across the stage with these giant heels on. And she's like, and I'm like, this girl's going to snap her ankle. She was so drunk. (laughs) And like they left and it just takes the whole, you got to be okay with the whole room to be like, all right, are we ready to move on? And it's like, (laughs) and everyone took a breath and you know, whatever, but yeah. You're on your side, right? I mean, yeah. the audience was glad to be rid of the, yeah. Oh, man. It's like, come on. Yeah. It was kind of like you handled that well. But I learned that watching the pros, man. I learned that learning from my mentors that like a lot of nervous comics will scream and yell and, you know, destroy the heckler and all that other. No. I never no, forget keep... that I'm being paid to play, but nobody is being paid to listen. Yeah. And I have yeah. never in my life tried to make anybody else shut up and listen to me play. I figure if they're not listening, I'm not working hard enough. But, I mean, with all due respect to our dear friend, the chief, telling people to shut the fuck up from the stage was not a <laughs> I finally saw the video. <laughs> Someone told me about it. It's Sweetwater. <laughs> I was like, it was awesome. He was totally right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was just the way it came out. <laughs> that, club is just, that is that club is just infamous for that, for just yeah. having an incredibly noisy audience. But I, <laughs> and I've had that thing, man. I once I opened for the Dark Star Orchestra once at the Music Farm in um, Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, played there many times. I I'm on that stage. The doors open. The place filled up with people that immediately rush down to grab their spot at the rail and blab at each other until Dark Star Orchestra hit the stage. Somewhere in between was my performance into that noisy room. And I was, it was just, I was, you know, there was just nothing I could do. I just bore down and hit it as hard as I could. And I made eye contact with as many people as I could. And I got a few people to listen, but their, their, my job was just to hold time Still time yeah. until DSO hit, and ninety-seven percent of the audience didn't give a fuck that I was there. I didn't totally, take it personally. Man. I just worked as hard as I could. You and know what I did? Oh, go night, ahead. I'm just one other story from that night. It was so fucking hot in the <laughs> that I went to the side door to walk outside and get a little air. And you know the end of this story, don't you, O'Deal? I walked outside and it was hotter and wetter outside <laughs> than it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's something i've been South there Carolina. yeah and it's like when people are, when people are drunk yeah. and let's face it they came to drink they came to see you yes you're number to... three drunk played music music <laughs> or comedy yeah and it absolutely. so and i feel the same way but it's more for me like if people aren't dancing like i wanted people to move so if I don't see movement, then I start getting disturbed in my spirit. I'm like, what? What am I not doing? Like, so, you know, a place where they force people to sit down is just like, I can't deal with it. I'm like, no, that's my whole reason for living, <laughs> you know, for people to <laughs> yeah. make people move, you know. That so that's halfway what gets between me. the two of you, because I, I, 
it's not just getting people to move because I'm not playing dance music. I'm playing yeah. like literate folk music, blah, 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 right? So I need people to actually hear the words like Mike does. Yeah. It's not just a matter of yeah. getting Buddhists to move. And it isn't just a matter of getting Buddhists to move for you either, but you have yeah, but... an easier indicator of success than we do. Yeah. <laughs> we had, it's, you know, it's so funny too, like with opening up for the Impractical Jokers, I open up for them in arenas. Like I've done Nassau Coliseum and the Bridgestone Arena and all these giant basketball stadiums or arenas around the country. And there's so many people and it's such a big, it, I'm not, I'm not, I sh it's like uh, the whole time I'm like, I shouldn't be on this stage. Like it's crazy. Feel like and then the, the, fly, but, yeah. but the tour announcer will go up, the lights will go down and the tour manager will go up on stage and go, you guys ready for the impractical jokers? <laughs> the place will go. Yeah. And then he'll go, well, before that, we're going to bring out Mike. <laughs> And they go, ah, so it's like, they've been like teased. And then I come jogging out like, how's everybody doing tonight? It's just such bullshit. No one cares. So I have that against me. So sometimes it's just like, you got to go like, Hey, what the fuck, man? You know, like, I'm just thrilled to be here. You know, <laughs> uh, we used to do that when the, we did the horde tour with the ARU. And so we'd be going on at like four 30 in the afternoon. So uh -huh. there's nobody there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember those. Yeah. But you're playing. I was, I was the first guy at a festival out in Michigan one time. Like the first act of the first day of a three-day weekend festival. And I played for seven, 17 vendors. And that was about it. <laughs> Literally oh, nobody yeah. on the lawn. But I got paid. That's it. And you did, and you know, it, did my job. <laughs> I tried to look at it like, okay, well, there's only 500 people here. It just feels bad because it's a place that seats 20,000. <laughs> you know? Yeah, true. But it's we had some really... ripping shows, though, and I think you just have to do them. You know, you're playing you for do. God. You're playing for the universe. You're playing for each other, too. Everybody each in that other. place should I, – I always feel like you, you should send everybody out of there telling their friends you should have been there. When I play yeah. in the ballroom, I figure I'm going to give everybody there the the everything I got, so they walk out and tell their friends you should have been. You missed it. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so cool hanging again with you, David. Thank yeah. you so much, dude. We got to do this again real soon. And uh, tell everyone where they could find all of your info. Uh, well, DavidGans.com. My uh, yeah, DGans.com works, although it's a really really crappy poorly maintained old piece of HTML code. So um, my stuff is available online at dgans.bandcamp.com. My online store where I have books and music for sale is perfectible.net. And um, I play live every day on Facebook at dgans music, four o'clock California time, Tuesday through Sunday. Mondays, I play on the Deadheadland channel at three o'clock California. Nice. And then, of course, the Grateful Dead Hour is heard all over the country. GDHour.com will get you a station list where you can hear that show live on the air. And Tales from the Golden Road is Sunday afternoons from 4 to 6 p.m. East Coast time on Sirius XM's Grateful Dead Channel 23. 
You're a busy, busy man. man, dude. Doing the Lord's work. Everything Thank you, that David. I do for a living has gotten harder to make a living at, but I've managed to keep it together for all this time <laughs> doing music-related stuff, so I am a very, very grateful boy. Heck yeah, man. We're grateful for you doing it, man. Thank you, brother. Thank Thanks you. for having me. It's great talking with both of you guys. Absolutely. Look forward to seeing you. Uh, I have to come here. You do a live set sometime, Mike. I, we haven't been in the same city much in recent years. We almost were. Yeah, you and I almost figured it out that time you were in Connecticut or, or nearby. We, I wanted to try to get you up for dinner and to hang, but uh, I was in New York doing shows. But I plan on coming to the Punchline in San Fran's a club I do. Great. Used to do pseudo regularly, but now we'll. I'll let you know for sure when I'm there. But uh, absolutely, taking your hand. Awesome. Feel I'm. I'm hoping I get to see at least a couple of Dead and Company shows this summer because I love what you guys yeah. are doing. I know Thank you don't want to get on a plane, so hopefully we're coming super close. Well, eventually I'll get on. <laughs> All right, we'll man. see everyone next week. Thank you. Bless you, brother. Take care. Osiris. Martel Cognac has been distilling bold cognac for upwards of 300 years. Treasured by royalty and connoisseurs alike, it's audaciously and simply the best. Hundreds of years of artisanship have brought forth Martel Blue Swift and Cordon Bleu. Blue Swift is the first-ever spirit drink made of cognac VSOP. Finished in bourbon casks, it stands alone on the rocks or mixes well in a cocktail. Cordon Bleu is intentionally named after the international emblem of excellence. It's a one-of-a-kind, truly unique cognac for special celebrations and memorable moments. Grab a bottle at a store near you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.